Welcome to episode 26 of the While She Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. My guests on the show today are Diane Gilliland and Haley Pearson-Cox. Diane Gilliland is a craft writer, designer, and teacher based in Portland, Oregon. She's the author of Kanzashi and Bloom and co-author of Quilting Happiness. And her third book is coming out in the spring of 2015. She blogs about all things crafty at craftypod.com. Diane, welcome. Thank you. I'm really excited to do this. Thanks for being here. Haley Pearson-Cox is a Brooklyn-based designer and craft writer with a focus on crochet, sewing, needlework, and geek crafts. She's a professional craft blogger, a staff writer at Craft, and a co-host of Craft Social, a monthly craft-focused Twitter chat. On her website, The Zen of Making, she shares tutorials, printable patterns, and her passion for making items that are both beautiful and useful. Haley Pearson-Cox, welcome. Hi, thanks. Um, So I want to start out today by talking about what it's like to be a self-employed craft professional, (laughs) if I can call it that, (laughs) because I think that in a way, like that's what all three of us really are. And um, so if you don't mind, I want to kind of dig in a little bit to what it looks like day to day, because when you're working for yourself, you really have to impose your own schedule and your own sense of discipline about how you use your time. And um, you have to also kind of give yourself assignments or dream up assignments for yourself sometimes and then kind of present them to people. So I wanted to kind of find out what that looks like for each of you. So maybe we'll start with you, Diane, if you don't mind. Can you describe for us, like, what is a typical workday routine look like for you? (laughs) That word typical is hard. (laughs) It doesn't really exist. But, well, the thing is that when you're self-employed and you're you're basing your self-employment on freelance income, you have you have to invest time in making the work and you have to invest time in creating future work and income for yourself. And neither of those things can really be allowed to slide. <laughs> you know, if you if you get really focused on doing this deadline now, then when you turn it in, you've got nothing after it and you're scrambling to pay the rent, you know. So I try to divide my days roughly in half and I try to do my building of future opportunities in the morning while I'm freshest. And then in the afternoon, I devote myself to production work on deadlines that I already have. And that seems to work well. Um, Creating future work is so many things at once. You know, it's um, actively building relationships. And it's, like you said, kind of looking around and dreaming up new opportunities for yourself and then figuring out who are the people and where are the places that you need to reach out to make that happen? And it's marketing things that you already have in process. So, you know, you're, you're really juggling a lot. But if I, as long as I make sure that I make time for those two broad categories of things each day, it all seems to work pretty well. Yeah, I like how you describe trying to secure future work as being just as important as doing the work that's on deadline now because that's so, that's so true. Um, Haley, what is your day-to-day sort of, if there is a typical kind of workday routine look like? Well, um, similar to what Diane said, my days are pretty much evenly split between 
generating new work or working on, um, like I'm a blogger for craft. So I have deadlines every day and posts that exist every day that go up. And so sort of my, the first half of my day is the work that I already know that I need to do and following up on work that is in the future. And then I try to spend the second half of my day actually making things or editing photos or blogging or designing new projects. Okay, so it sounds like because you have kind of an outside regular employment piece too, you have to fulfill those obligations first, obviously. Um, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, one of the other things I wanted to talk about is about doing, um, freelance work for like bigger companies, you know, for craft companies or for websites like craft or for magazines. And, um, I wanted to know what you both felt was sort of attractive about doing that kind of freelance work. Um, as opposed to kind of selling your own products or selling, you know, your own handmade goods or becoming a pattern designer or that kind of thing. What is it about freelance work that attracts you? And then how do you go about getting those jobs in the craft industry, which I think is a, a really hard question, but, um, but that's something I think a lot of people wonder about. So, uh, so do you, you want to take that one first? Sure. Um, I'm in an interesting place with that question because I'm I'm kind of newly uh, operating in the quilting world, and you know the quilting has obviously exploded in recent years, and there's a a community of designers who sort of all came up at the same time. It, it happens in special interest communities all the time. There's like an initial group that sort of become the the superstars of that community. And um, so there's a lot of people in quilting and a lot of superstars in quilting and breaking in and forming the relationships to get freelance work in that area, I'm finding to be a little more uphill than I had thought it would be. Um, Every community is different, and and I think that there are phases within a community where it might be easier or harder to break in and find opportunities. Back in maybe 2006, 2007, I was kind of one of that early group for more of a general craft community, right? So that was when it was all about the indie crafters and not your grandma's crafts and that kind of thing. And at that time, because I was there early and and was sort of one of those people, opportunity really just showed up for me. I just had to check my email. It was a great time to be a freelancer. But, you know, things evolve constantly, so that wasn't a permanent condition, sadly. It never is. So it's been interesting to contrast that experience with trying to reach into quilting now. I still love to do freelance work for craft companies, I think that a lot of times you get more interesting creative challenges that you might not have gotten to on your own. I think that some, in some cases and with certain companies, you know, the, the compensation might be better than you'd be able to eke out for selling your own thing. That's not a uh, universal condition. It's, it's always changing. But, you know, I, I think that 
it's easier in some ways and more straightforward in terms of the path to the income <laughs> to do freelance work for companies. But that said, I strongly believe in sort of mixing the two. So I have income streams of selling my own things and I have income streams of doing work for other companies. I think it's hard to go 100% one way or the other. Yeah, and for me, I feel like the times in which I can combine the two, which is rare, but it does happen. For example, um, a lot of times with a magazine contract, you can uh, design for a magazine based on their specifications. You know, we want a spring project with these particular colors and in the, made up in these fabrics, for example. So, you know, you take, take that assignment, you complete the assignment, and they photograph it and um, et cetera. And then, and then once it's on newsstands for a few months and you get your samples back, the rights revert to you, and then you can sell that um, either the finished product at a craft fair or on your website or on Etsy or something like that. And you can actually even sell the pattern and instructions once the rights revert back to you as well. So it's almost like doing double duty and it gives you that initial push. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point. Yeah. When I, that doesn't happen often, but it, when it does, <laughs> when it does, that seems like the best of all worlds. Um, so, so um, Haley, what kind of freelance work do you do besides working with craft? Have you worked with some, I think you have worked with some other craft companies and maybe some magazines out, as, as well. And how did you go about getting those jobs? Um, well, I'm sort of a strange duck within the community of professional crafters in that I've never actually tried or had really any interest in selling handmade finished items. I have always been a blogger and designer, and so I've never really had the addition of, um, I guess, the added pressure of needing to produce things to sell. And so I've always focused on doing a lot of designs, and especially when I was just getting started working with larger companies. And so, like you said, I do work for craft specifically, and I do daily blogging, and I also design original projects for them um, every once in a while. And I've worked with other larger websites um, like Fave Crafts, and um, I've also done some work for books, and specifically like one of projects if a friend of mine has a book coming out. And so um, I guess when approaching getting that kind of work, I've found that working for one company and getting your foot in the door initially and starting to have the kinds of professional relationships and relationships with other makers who also do the same kind of work that you do often leads to getting other work in other areas and people recommending you for jobs that they can't do um, or don't have time to do. And so it's... Um, it's really sort of an interesting balance between coming up with your own good creative ideas and spending time going to, say, trade shows or um, local events and meeting other makers with whom you can develop relationships and meet other people um, 
and sort of uh, get introduced to areas that you aren't necessarily already a part of and getting work through that. And you know, that's one of my favorite things about the crafting community, I guess, is that making friends and knowing what other people are making really does help you get work. And it really, it isn't just putting the uh, sort of label of networking on something that you don't really want to do. Um, it's great and fun to meet other makers, and that can often lead to opportunities that you hadn't planned on. Yeah, because posting something on Instagram, right, could be seen as networking, but it's also really fun. Um, yeah. So, and it's, you know, relationship building sometimes and um, showing your work, getting other people to notice it or comment on it or um, show it to a friend. And, um, and through those, you know, through that sort of quote-unquote networking, which is also actually just sort of a fun part of your day, um, sometimes new opportunities can come to you just that way. Exactly. Yeah. So both of you have been to industry trade shows, and I have to say that I, I haven't been to a trade show. So just first tell me what trade shows you've been to, um, and then we'll kind of delve into a little bit about like what you learn at each of those. So Dan, what shows have you... I know you've been to Quilt Market. Yeah, let's see. I've been to Quilt Market. I've been to CHA. Which is the Craft and Hobby Association's trade show. Yes, those two. Those are the two big ones, I feel like. Let's, let's say that's it. Okay. Yes. And, and Haley, what about you? Oh, um, well, I've been to Craftcation, which sort of counts. Um, I've been there, too. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and CHA, and um, I also came from book publishing professionally before I was a blogger. And so I've been to all of the big events in book publishing, like Book Expo and the American Library Association trade shows and the Public Library Association trade shows, which, surprisingly enough, have a whole lot of focus on DIY and events related to that. Interesting. What kind of publishing work did you do? Um, I was in sales and marketing. Nice. And so, uh, yeah, I worked with movie books and... Um, sort of coffee table, picture books, and things like that. Okay. Um, all right. So from going to, um, to the craft-related trade shows, and, and Haley, for you also from going to kind of the book re- publishing-related trade shows, um, what kinds of, of things did you learn from interacting with people there? I guess first let's focus on doing kind of in-booth demonstrations because I think both of you have done in-booth demonstrations, kind of showing attendees at the trade show how to make a specific project using a particular product that a company is releasing or promoting that season. And so people walk by and you kind of help them to you know apply the, pro- the, the product to the project and walk away way with something that they've learned or that they've made. So you're the demonstrator in that, you know, particular uh, position. So what kind, what is that like? And what do you, I'm imagining you learn something from interacting with sort of the public or a portion of the public that way. Yeah, I worked quite a few shows with Clover. Um, when my first book, Kanzashi and Bloom, came out, in 2009, I think. Uh, Clover came out shortly thereafter with a template that made the Kanzashi petals. 
and they asked if I would come and do some shows with them and demonstrate that product. And then I was also able to show my book at the same time. So it was a nice synergy opportunity. And I had a great time at those shows because it's so helpful to see real people interacting with the craft. You know, like if I, I've taught Kanzashi, I don't know, two million times at this point, you know, my brain creates all kind of shorthands and things, and it's always really helpful to see people who've never done it before and what questions they have and how they approach the process. So um, doing that at a trade show like CHA for three days was like a turbocharged <laughs> exposure to that kind of learning experience. And then it, just from an industry standpoint, it was interesting to see the mindsets of the people coming up, you know, because they weren't really crafters so much as business owners trying to think about how this product would fit in their businesses. So they were really looking at the craft on a very different level than someone who was excited about making the flowers themselves. And so I learned a lot by sort of watching the conversations they would have with each other while I was doing my demo and the, the questions they were asking me. Um, it, the whole thing was just a great experience. I actually like approaching a big show like that as a demonstrator because I find those shows so overwhelming sometimes. It's very helpful just to have one place to be and sort of let the show come to you a little bit <laughs> as opposed to walking around and taking the show in. Yeah, and it gives you something. I always feel like it's easier for me when I have something to do that automatically gives me something in common with the people I'm talking to because we can always talk about this project or this book or this product, you know, and then sort of launch into talking about other things that you might see or experience at the show. But if you're just walking around untethered, <laughs> you know, like, how do I approach anybody and talk to anybody? And, you know, you can end up sort of probably talking to nobody. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can think of a specific, um, I don't know, something that was surprising to you or that you remember from some of those business-related conversations that some of the you know shop owners were having regarding the product or the book uh, when they would come by, sort of a, their spin on how they were thinking about what they were seeing versus the way you know a blog reader would think about Kanzashi or... Um, a crafter. Well, there was one instance, and I apologize, I don't remember really any specifics about the company. Um, I, I remember that the there were two women, and they were involved with a particular quilt store somewhere, and uh, I was showing them my stuff and uh, talking about Kanzashi and how great it was, and one of them uh, thought that you know, Kanzashi were awesome. You know, we should, she was saying we should really give this some space in the store and we could do in-store demos and et cetera. And then the other woman said, well, right, but we committed to, she had a name for it, but there was some other kind of floral craft product. And she's like, we committed to that thing uh, two years ago and it never sold, so we should really think about it. And, it, and so it was this much broader um it was this much broader view of how it was all going to fit together. And since the product was so new, you know, the only thing I had to go on was it was pretty much the hit of that CHA, 
you know, there was a lot of buzz about it, but I couldn't point to like, hey, these sales figure history tells us this. <laughs> you know, we didn't have any of that yet. So um, all all these shop owners had to go on was their gut and their experience, and uh, they were they were using that a lot for decision making. Right, that's fascinating. Yeah, what a valuable experience just to be witness to some of those conversations, even if maybe to a certain degree it sort of feels like hurtful, you know, like sometimes you're like, but really it's fun, you know, but, um, you can't, you know, you have to kind of see it from their view, which is a business point of view. So, um, that's interesting. So, um, so Haley, what kind of demonstrations have you done at, um, at some of the trade shows that you've been to and and what did you feel like you got from those experiences? Uh, I've done two different kinds of demos. Um, one, is a make and take where people actually come and do a hands-on project with you and you lead them through the process. Um, And those are usually projects that are designed specifically for a trade show environment. They're quick and they're designed to show people in sort of a real world setting how to actually use a product. And so, um, those are sort of fun because it's a challenge to design a project that people are going to be excited about making while making it quick enough to do in sort of a walk-by, stop-in-the-booth setting. And um, I'm not necessarily known for quick and easy, and so it uh, – I find it to be a really satisfying challenge to design those kinds of projects. And you learn a lot about how people who are not professional crafters interact with a, pro- with a product um, because it's often a lot, maybe a little more straightforward than I necessarily consider products. Um, they want to see how it works and they want to use it the way you're using it often. And so it's, it's kind of fun to see sort of the differences in how people think about and approach making when you're in sort of a more structured setting. And then um, the other kinds of demos that I've done are just the straight-up demonstrations. So being in a booth and showing a hopefully large crowd of people how to do one thing or speaking about one thing at a time. And that's the sort of thing I usually do at like Maker Fair or something like that, where you're going to get a decent crowd and people want, people are willing to stay put and learn something. They're not on their way to a sales appointment in the booth next door. Right. Right. And what kind of thing would you demonstrate? Like what would be an example of something you would demonstrate in that setting? Uh, I did a, like a basic embroidery demonstration um, showing how to use some basic tools and just enough information to get people started um, at a, a maker fair recently. And that went over pretty well. And people also had the opportunity to pick up some scrap embroidery floss and um, some fabric and give it a try. But the demonstration wasn't sort of a step-by-step wait for everybody to catch up sort of approach. Right, right. Just enough to get them going, as you said. Yeah. Yeah, cool. 
Um, well, hopefully I'll have an opportunity and then coming here to sort of see what a trade show like that's like myself. That would be fun. Um, so I want to talk a little bit before we get into our list of recommendations of great stuff that we're all three enjoying right now. I want to first talk about things on the horizon. Um, Diane, I am really excited about your upcoming t-shirt quilt class with Creative Live. So um, can you describe like the format of Creative Live classes for us? Because they're a little bit different from some of the other online classes people might be familiar with. And then um, what exactly your class will be all about? Sure thing. Yeah, I'm super excited about this too. I have, uh, I've taught so many two and three hour craft classes that it's been a really interesting challenge to sort of formulate uh, what's going to be 12 hours of live teaching for uh, for people. Yeah, it's been a really interesting challenge. But in a way, it's super nice to have the luxury of time to cover all the details. You know, usually I'm having to really speed things up to get it all in in a couple hours. And so now I'll be able to really dive into as much detail as I've always wanted to. But so creative live classes are broadcast live on the Internet. So my class, for example, is August 21st and 22nd, and it will be broadcasting between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Pacific time on both those days. And you can tune in for the whole thing or at any time and watch it. And there's a live chat stream, so you can send me questions. And there's a host person that will relay those questions to me, and I can answer them. Or you can chat with other people who are participating live as well. Uh, There's even a studio audience that will be crafting along with me, and so we'll be checking in with them and getting their questions and perspectives. There are, uh, you can RSVP for the class, which simply means that Creative Life will let you know when it's broadcasting, and they'll also send you a couple of PDF extras, you know, to help you get your materials together and know what to expect in the class. And then in my class on t-shirt quilting, we're going to spend the first day learning how to handle t-shirts, how to turn them into usable fabric, and how to turn them into quilt blocks, and then... I've developed a process for creating a quilt layout that will work with any stack of T-shirts and will get you to a different kind of layout each time. So the kinds of T-shirt quilts I like to do are not really the ones where you cut each T-shirt to the same size block and then sew them together. I like to come up with layouts that are very dynamic and sort of take advantage of the shapes and colors that each pile of shirts offers. So I've come up with a whole little process to get you to that. And then day two is all about the the operations of quilting. So, you know, we'll build a quilt top and we'll build a quilt sandwich and we'll learn three different ways to quilt it and we'll learn how to add a binding and all of those things in great detail. And and I'm teaching from a very beginner-friendly standpoint because I approach quilting uh, from a mindset of having been terrified of quilting for many years because I felt like I didn't have the math skills or the perfectionism necessary to make quilts. And I finally just uh, one day told myself I was going to get over that and I was going to make quilts in a way that felt comfortable to me. And so that is how I approach quilting entirely now. And I have a great time making quilts. My quilts are not perfect, and I do not care. I really enjoy them <laughs> for what they are. That's awesome. Yeah, I I sometimes am like sort of live in fear of, of some sort of mythical quilting police that's going to come and get me. <laughs> <laughs> because math, cutting things in a straight line, you know, uh, making things match up perfectly, 
Uh, those are not my uh, strong suits generally. I mean, I do a fair amount of math and I do a fair amount of cutting things in straight lines and making things match up perfectly in all honesty in, in the work that I do with softies and dolls. But somehow with quilting, I feel like, I don't know, there's like a really high standard. So it's good to hear that your class will um, work with people like me who <laughs> who want to <laughs> want to accept our imperfections and still make something really cool. So. I might be the quilting police. It's entirely possible. <laughs> Don't come over. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's you. only for me. <laughs> well, Haley, the thing about you is you're um, so multi-craftual. Like you do everything great. Yesterday you had this beautiful knitted shawl on your blog. And then just last week you had as part of our 12 hexi blog hop that we were all part of that Diane organizes gigantic um, hexi flower quilt that you had made. So I just admire so much your your ability to do so many things well. What is that like for you? Um, well, I was sort of the, you know, the generation that got skipped as far as learning that stuff. But um, when I was a kid, my older cousins were taught how to crochet and sew and things like that and I never was but I always made things um and it wasn't until I was an adult that I decided that I was going to knit and then I was going to crochet and then I was going to sew clothes and I happened to come to those things pretty naturally and so I'm very fortunate that uh, I guess to have the ability to pick things up pretty easily when it comes to spatial relations and um, the actual making with my hands, it all feels pretty comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know. I Nobody ever told me that I couldn't do all of those things and do them reasonably well. So I... I just decided I was going to. Yeah, I think it's terrific. Um, I do think it's rare, though, that people, that a person feels confident in both knitting, crochet, and sewing at, like, a high level. You know, like, I think many people feel like they dabble, and they're really good at one one of those things. So I think that's amazing. Um, Well, thanks. Yeah. I, I guess I think that people feeling as though they dabble has more to do with them being super, super excited about one thing more than the others. And I don't really have that. And so I, I don't know. I, I think that if you're really excited about making things, it doesn't really matter the process that, um, that you're going to use to get there. I I think that a lot of people feel like they can't do a lot of or many different things and that they're supposed to specialize. And I don't, I don't know. I don't believe that's the case. And I think that if you're excited about many different things, even if they're not related, do it. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think some people would give you the advice, well, you need to be really like hyper niche, you know, like pick one thing and become the person who is known for that particular skill or that technique or that, you know, that one Thing. And then that's the way to get known in kind of a crowded online world. But I think that you're proof that that doesn't have to be the case, that if you do like a lot of different things and are good at a lot of different things, and um, as you said, like to make things and don't really 
mind how you get there to, <laughs> to the end result, um, that you can forge a way for yourself. Diane, you're also multi craftual. <laughs> and, um, and I know you, I mean, besides quilting, which we just talked about, you love plastic canvas and, um, maybe are the one known for plastic canvas at this point. <laughs> I would say yes. <laughs> the um, only one. <laughs> yeah. Like when I see plastic canvas books or something at the thrift store, I'm like, Diane would like this book <laughs> immediately. Um, <laughs> and, and also now for English paper piecing, which is another favorite of yours. So um, do you feel like in any way having sort of all of these different interests has been like a, a negative for you or do you feel like it's all been a positive well, I feel like it's been a little bit of both, honestly. Um, I can't not dabble. I, I would not constitutionally be capable of focusing on the same thing all the time because it's just really important to me to combine and hybridize different craft techniques in lots of ways. That said, I do think there is something to focusing uh, from a freelance and professional standpoint, I think, you know, Haley is, is shining proof that everything I'm about to say is not an absolute, but, you know, I, I do think that if potential professional contacts can have a handle on what you're about quickly and easily, it's sometimes easier to work with them toward a direction where they're ready to hire you. It is sometimes harder when it's like, yes, I'm a super general crafter to have a company understand that, you know, and you can hire me for this specific thing and that specific thing. Um, especially when there are so many people, as you said, in the space, you know, trying to do the same kinds of work. So, you know, slight detriment there. And of course, yeah, I mean, I adore plastic canvas. If I had focused entirely on plastic canvas for the last five years, I might really have built some things up from a business standpoint, right? Like I might have a whole slew of published patterns and I might have um, started working with publishers who produce books and things. And all of that would have been great, except that I've been focusing on many other crafts at the same time. In some ways, it's harder to get as much done professionally if you're in a lot of directions at once. And uh, I, I kind of constantly feel um, like the lack of what I haven't accomplished, if that sentence makes any sense, which <laughs> I'm not sure it does. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And, so, yet, and yet I would, not, I would not really be able to focus. I would right. get bored. In the end, you know, the work has to make you feel satisfied and make you happy and otherwise it's not going to be gorgeous and perfect and complete and all of those good things it's not you know um pe people really want to be part of something when they see how happy it makes you and how passionate you are about it and so if it if just pursuing plastic canvas for example for years and years might have been a route to a certain level of success in that one area, but might not have made you feel satisfied, then it, you know, in the end, maybe it wouldn't have been. So it's a, it's an interesting thing to think about because I, I do feel like in certain ways I, I do have kind of a niche area that I focus on. And, um, and sometimes I struggle against it, like, but I just want to spend time working on something else right now. And then I'm like, am I wasting time by working on something else when I should be focusing on a new pattern and that sort of thing? It's, 
kind of a constant back and forth, but um, I don't know. Get big, big ideas to come from all over. So, um, all right. So let's, if you don't mind, I think we should just jump into our list of recommendations. Does that sound okay with you guys? Yeah. All right. Cool. So um, I asked both of you to uh, come up with some things that you are really enjoying right now that you would recommend to people. And I've come up with a list myself. Um, so uh, Haley, let's start with you. I wanted to hear about the AccuQuilt uh, Go, which is a uh, fabric die cutter, but it's like a small one. Yeah, the uh, AccuQuilt Go Baby. Oh, sorry. It's called Go Baby. Go. <laughs> yep. Well, the Got Go it. is the bigger one. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Um, but uh, the AccuQuilt Go Baby has changed my life. Just want to put that out there. It is my favorite tool in my studio right now um, because it does this beautiful thing that is cut pieces of fabric in exactly the correct shape every time. And that doesn't necessarily sound like something that would be totally life-changing, but if you've ever fought with fabric weights or had your ruler slip while you were cutting, I... uh, I feel like you could understand how getting multiple perfect shapes from a machine would be a little bit magical. Oh my gosh, definitely. Because cutting for me is like the biggest roadblock to quilting because I I just am terrible at cutting things perfectly. And I just, I will mess it up and then I'll be really sad that I wasted my gorgeous fabric. And it's also time consuming cutting, you know? So what kind of, um, dyes, like what are the shapes of the dyes that you use the most often? Um, right now I'm using their new English paper piecing dyes, which are extra super magical because they cut both fabric and paper templates for English paper piecing at the same time. And that makes me so very happy. Um, and they can cut up to, think six layers of regular quilting fabric at once. So you can end up with an awful lot of uh, hexagons in very little time. So when and, you say, sorry, when you say it yeah. cuts both paper, both the paper template and the, the fabric at the same time, the template's got to be smaller though, right? Than the fabric because you're folding over the edges. Is that, so does it cut a smaller hexi at the same yeah. time as a larger one? Um, each of the dies is sort of split in half and half is the fabric side, which is, which has a seam allowance added. And then the other half is the paper side, which doesn't, um, it's the, the actual template size that you're going to end up with. And so, uh, it cuts the fabric on the fabric side and the paper on the paper side, which is also nice because you don't, um, Uh, You know how you aren't supposed to cut paper with fabric scissors ever, ever, ever? Yeah. Well, this avoids that with the dyes. Right. Um, And so they're really great. I, uh, yeah, that's pretty much all I have to say. I love that. (laughs) It's a little bit of an investment, right? Like it's it's under $200, but it's over $100. I can't remember exactly how much it was. The Go Baby is um, the small sort of desktop version and it's under a hundred dollars. I think it's about 90. Nice. Um, but the dies 
are kind of pricey as well. Um, they hover around 40. Um, and full disclosure, AccuQuilt sent me the dies and the cutter for an event that a friend of mine was having, um, for a book release. And so they sort of made the magic happen and I didn't necessarily have to lay out, um, lay out that money. So they are my heroes. (laughs) But it sounds to me like you would really recommend that people buy one if they want. Oh, absolutely. I I would buy it myself if I didn't already own one. Right. Now that you've tasted it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Never again. You can never go back. Yeah. And they stand up to demonstrations, Uh which is uh, pretty impressive for, for a tool. It definitely cut hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pieces for that book event and worked just as well at the end as it did in the beginning. So I was really pleased. That's great. And I know AccuQuote, they have bigger cutters and they also will help you to create custom dies. Um, yep. I did a piece of my blog a while back with Phil Barbado and he uh, creates uh, plush toys and he has had custom dies made for his own toy designs. And it is amazing how much faster he can produce because he doesn't sell patterns. He sells finished toys and how, how much faster now he can sew um, so many more of his little monsters um, with these custom dies that AccuQuilt made for him that it was well worth the investment of paying for the die. So um, just something FYI, if you are somebody who makes finished goods, it might be worth your investment over time. Um, all right, Diane, we, you wanted to talk, um, sort of generally about English paper piecing and you've made me an addict. So <laughs> I, <laughs> went from, I went from being like a non quilter to being obsessed. So, <laughs> so go ahead and tell us. Good. More about I it. want everybody to get <laughs> obsessed. <laughs> you know, I, I talk about life changing, you know, we were talking earlier about the quilt police and feeling intimidated and et cetera. Right. So I couldn't begin to tell you where I first stumbled on English paper piecing other than kind of seeing lots of hexagon projects that people have been doing all over the Internet for years. The first time I tried that technique, it was so amazing because I realized that, you know, none of my being not particularly good at math, none of my not being particularly good at cutting straight lines, (laughs) none of that really matters with English paper piecing. The paper does all the work of precision for you. And you can make the most beautiful and intricate pictures in fabric with this technique without having to be particularly technically skilled at quilting. Uh, And it goes way beyond hexagons, although hexes are wonderful to play with, but you can do amazing stuff with diamonds and triangles and octagons. There's just so many interesting shapes. And it's the best meditative craft technique I've found in a very long time. Amen. Yeah, I've logged so many um, hours of West Wing and English paper piecing (laughs) as a mode of therapy. (laughs) I can't begin to tell you. And it's just anybody can do it. You know, I've taught it to 
kids and I've taught it to people who say that they don't have any crafting skill and it just seems to universally appeal. So I'm on a mission. I want everybody to give it a try. It is really cool. And one of the other things that you mentioned, uh, so you mentioned that, you know, cutting things in a straight line, you don't have to be able to do that because the paper does the work. Um, And, uh, and so the other thing that I I always think is, is great about English paper piecing is that they are hand sewn. And so the, the hexagons or the shapes that you're sewing together. But in the beginning, I was like, well, I'm not going to be able to do this because when I hand sew, I don't have like, they're not like the most perfectly spaced stitches or, you know, they're, they're just a little bit imperfect. And I, I was worried that all that hand sewing that was not perfect would show, but it doesn't. So it's totally mobile and you can hand, if you're not perfect at hand sewing, that's okay. Cause it's all on the underside. You're going to just whip stitch and then you don't see, you don't see those stitches. Yeah. That's the thing. Like there's just no amount of imperfection that shows up in the finished product right. ever. It's kind of amazing. Actually. It is amazing. Yeah. And I will say like, I've made two uh, doll quilts from, with English paper pieced hexes and my hand sewing got so much better just in the process of doing it so much that if you want to improve your hand sewing, even though your little imperfections won't show in your quilt, you will just become more confident and, and sort of have more evenly spaced stitches and more even tension on your stitches and all that good stuff just from doing it so much. So it's kind of a good skill builder in the end. Yeah, it really is. And it's also just something that you can just kick back and do, right? You, like you said, you can take it with you anywhere. It's a great thing to watch a movie or a baseball game with, uh, you know, it's just a really nice craft to carry around in your life and use those little bits of time that pop up. Yeah. And there's little bits of fabric. Like I have a little tiny piece of Liberty that I've been hanging on to (laughs) that I'm going to make into a hex gun soon. So fun. Yeah, totally good. Um, okay. So one of my recommendations is, um, a newsletter that I just signed up for. It's not quite a newsletter. It's, called news.me. I don't know if either of you have heard of this before. I just heard about it last week and signed up. Um, Basically what it does is you connect it with your Twitter account and with your Facebook account if you're on Facebook. Um, And every morning you get an email from news.me with the top five stories that have been shared on Twitter and on Facebook by your friends. Um, So it shows who shared those stories, like, you know, these five of your friends all shared this one story or whatever. Um, it's very simple and clean. They're not trying to sell you anything. It's not crazy and over the top. It's just like a white, you know, email with these five stories have been shared by your friends yesterday. Um, it's great for, I don't know, things that you might've missed, you know, during, we talked about that afternoon period when we're being creative and trying to work on our own projects. And I tend during that time to kind of turn everything off so that nothing's beeping and calling my attention and I can actually complete, you know, a creative project. And during that time though, I miss stuff that's happening. Of course, like people are sharing interesting things or, you know, something that's going on, people are discussing. And, and so when I pop back on in the evening, sometimes I've totally missed out on that whole, on that whole thing. So it's, it's useful to get, the top five stories shared by your friends in your email. It's totally free. I like it. News.me. So I recommend it. <laughs> it's cool. That, that is cool. Writing that one down. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Just try it, right? I always feel like with these things, try it. Like subscribe, try it for five days. And after the fifth day, if you're like, this is just not for me, just unsubscribe. You know, <laughs> it's the 
<laughs> you haven't lost anything, but if you're getting something valuable, like this morning, I retweeted something that I saw on news.me that came in this morning and I had missed. So, you know, it's worth, it's worth it. If you'd like to share interesting content with your followers and um, might have missed things. So there you go. Um, all right, Healy, we're back up to you. This is so cool. It's called Full Dio. Tell me more about it. I looked it up when you recommended it and I was like, ah, this is so cool. Yeah, it is definitely, I don't know where on the internet I saw it, um, but I immediately had to have one. And uh, what Foldio is, is um, a portable photography light box. And it's, it's very small. It's less than a square foot, um, but it has a built-in LED strip and it folds small enough to put into like a shoulder bag. And it takes maybe 10 seconds to set up, and you've got a fully functioning light box to snap a quick photo of pretty much, you know, anything that fits within a square foot. And so it is wonderful and quick and so much easier to deal with than my giant light box where I have to set up the lights, and it's just it has made my life so much easier. And, uh, I'm actually working on a review of it right now. Um, and so I'm especially jazzed. (laughs) (laughs) So it comes together with magnets, right? It's not like Velcro. It's like, it kind of like hook the magnets kind of attract each other. And that's what makes it into a square box. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. The, um, when you, put it together, the tabs along the side come together with magnets, but it also, when you fold it up, um, holds itself together with magnets so it doesn't make a mess or come unfolded or anything like that. And it's it's very neat and very smart. And I usually with things like this, there's something that I would change. Um, and I can't think of anything I would change. The magnets even hold the battery off to the side so it doesn't get in the way when you're shooting. That's and cool. I mean, it's, it's really fantastic. So, and when it folds up, is it like the size of a file folder? Like, is that around the right? Um, it's actually, it's smaller than that. Wow. It's, um, you know, it's, I think it's about a foot by a foot and less, maybe half an inch wow. thick. Wow. That's so, great. Yeah, it's it's small and it comes with a in a neat little handy bag that you can put it in so it protects it. But it's um it's really sturdy and lightweight and I really like it. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. And the LED lights are bright enough that it, it provides a good amount of light inside there. They are bright enough. Um I was actually just on their website yesterday and noticed that they have two versions. One has one built-in strip of LEDs, and the other one has two strips. Um, I have the one strip, and it certainly provides enough light um, for most of what I do. But the the two-strip one looks super bright, and I was actually really surprised that the the LEDs were really bright enough to light a light box. That was the thing that I was most skeptical about when I ordered it. And they really do. And I bet the uh, the two-strip works even better. 
but I haven't tried that one. That's cool. And it's great if you want to take a really good picture with your phone too, because you can just travel, you know, wherever you are and take a really nice close up shot with a, you know, seamless background and all that good stuff. But just, yeah, I think it would be really great for Etsy sellers. I'm not one, but it's so fast and so easy. It, It just, it seems perfect for that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's such a great... It, I, when I saw it, I was like, this is brilliant. <laughs> this is mm-hmm. so cool. Um, all right, so Diane, um, I wanted to ask you about two things. Um, they're not, one of them is a surprise, so I hope that's okay. <laughs> well, <I> said, <laughs> the one that's a surprise, I'll tell you now so you can think about it, which is, um, I think it was you who recommended Monument Valley, the game. Did that come from you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yes, yes, (laughs) So one of them is that, which you could think about for a minute because that is a surprise. And the other one is um, totally not related, is Quilt Calc, which is Robert Kaufman's app. So tell us about that one first. Yes, I love this app so much. I discovered it. um, I was making a little quilt project for my forthcoming book and um, miscalculated, (laughs) did the math wrong, calculating my binding, and I ended up with like 12 miles of extra yellow binding, uh, which if anyone needs 12 miles of yellow binding, they should talk to me. Um, so I went on Twitter, which is the source of all things uh, answers, and I said, okay, <laughs> clearly I'm not very good at this math. What what tools do you guys know of that will help me? And a whole bunch of people said, oh, just get this app. It'll take care of everything for you. So um, you put it on your mobile device, and you can feed in the dimensions of your quilt, and it will calculate for you not only what yardage to buy to bind your quilt, but how much yardage you would need to back that quilt. You can also figure out uh, yardage to buy for cut pieces, which is kind of amazing. Like you could just put in your all of your measurements for the piece that you're working on, and it will it will calculate everything for you. And it's just so helpful <laughs> for those of us who are not math wizards. And it has saved me a lot of money in fabric, too. <laughs> I tell you. Yep, I just carry it with me to the fabric store and put in my dimensions and boom, go to the cutting counter. It's the greatest thing ever. That sounds great. And it's Haley, mm-hmm. do you have this app as well? Yeah, I do. I totally agree with Diane. It's fantastic. <laughs> cool. yeah, guys, go get it. Okay, that sounds like a good one. And is it free? I don't remember looking uh, whether it's free for the... And, and I got it for free, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think so. Okay, cool. So why not? Just go get it. Um, okay, and Monument Valley. So this is a game on... Um, well, we have it on our iPad that I got recommended. I actually don't play very many games, and so it's actually only been played by my 10-year-old, but she's sort of obsessed with it now, and it's really beautiful from what I've seen. So what is this game about? It's, it is. It's a beautiful kind of a puzzle game. Your character is this tiny little person who's wearing like a pointed tall pointed hat and she's a princess and she's wandering through this land uh that's kind of a dead world all that's left is the the monuments that the culture created so each level is this beautifully executed piece of artwork involving some kind of a complicated building shape And your job in the game is to walk around this building and figure out how to get from point A to point B. And the building can usually be rotated a couple of different ways. 
and when you rotate it, it reveals little hidden doors and passageways. There's nothing um, violent about it. It's, it's a game where you cannot be killed. <laughs> it's uh, it, beautiful, really meditative music accompanies it. And so it's this little immersive world where your only goal is to be patient and keep trying different possibilities until you find the solution. And then there's a little storyline that as you complete each level, it kind of reveals more about this world and your little princess character is helping to heal the world. So it's kind of a little beautiful and positive storyline at the same time. It's just absolutely compelling. So I, I think I paid four ninety nine for that one, but I, it would have been worth it at twice the price. Yeah, when I saw it um, and I looked at it in the app store, I just went ahead and bought it too because it does it does seem like a good game for all the reasons that you mentioned. And um, yeah, the music is nice actually. Mm-hmm. I, I mostly experience it through the music because she's playing it on the couch. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like sorry, I kind of do like the music. I have to say. Um, okay, so that was a good one. And um, I just have one more recommendation, which is uh, an interview on Fresh Air with Terry Gross that I heard actually on my run this morning. Uh, first of all, um, I love Terry Gross, and I often tweet that I wish Terry Gross was my mom. I love my mom, too, but I also love Terry <laughs> Gross. <laughs> and if she was my mom, that would be very nice. But anyway, um, so she interviewed uh, George Takei, who was Mr. Sulu on Star Trek. Um, and he, there's a new documentary that's just about to come out about him, which is, I guess, why they did the interview. It's called To Be Takei, and um, it's all about his life. But he has a fascinating life. Um, he's Japanese-American, and his family was interned um, in the internment camps during World War II, and he was five when they first were um, sent to Arkansas from Los Angeles, and he was there until he was nearly nine. So those were kind of like some formative years of his life that he spent um, imprisoned and then um, and then went back to Los Angeles, and his family had to rebuild from nothing. They lived on Skid Row, literally, and his father, within four years, owned a three-bedroom home in their old neighborhood. I mean, worked incredibly hard. And um, he, you know, George Takei wanted to be an actor from a young age and also realized that he was gay from a young age, but had to hide that in order to become an actor and be a success. But now that he's much older, um, he has come out and has now become a um, spokesperson for the LGBT community. So that's sort of what he dedicates a lot of his time to now. And anyway, his life story is really, really fascinating. This interview was a great teaser for the um, for the documentary, which I really want to see. So I recommend it. You can get it on Fresh Air's um, website, and I listen to it via the app. But um, it, it was really good, so I really enjoyed it. Um, and someday I'll meet Terry Gross, and that'll be a great day for me. <laughs> um, all right, so we're going to end... Um, with just a last, a final quick recommendation from each of you. And um, Haley, you're, you had two left, so um, maybe just talk to us a little bit about um, one of them, which is Cotton and Steel. Oh, sure. Um, I am really, really excited about Cotton and Steel Fabrics, which is a new fabric venture from some of my favorite fabric designers, like Melody Miller. 
and seeing all of the photos from people who were checking it out at trade shows earlier this summer, I'm just so excited and I cannot wait to get my hands on it. The fabric is fun. It's, it, it looks new and interesting in a way that I, I don't know, I, I just haven't been as excited about fabric lines um, in a way that I am about this in a very long time. It's, it's just really, really good work. It's very artistically done, I have to say, and I, I've watched some of their sort of trailer videos. I love that everything has a trailer video now, by the way, and um, you really get a great sense of how it how it all came together and how all the prints coordinate with one another. And um, I also don't often buy f- fabric from like big designer fabric lines, but this one seems irresistible to me. So I agree with you. Um, all right, and Diane, you get the last pick, which is a book called Quilting with a Modern Slant by Rachel May. Yes, I adore this book. It came out from Story Publishing earlier in the year. And uh, full disclosure, they're the publisher of my forthcoming book, and I love them, but I would love this book independently of them as well. (laughs) Uh, So Rachel wanted to document the modern quilt movement. And I think the modern quilt movement is an exciting thing, but it's also become, in a lot of ways, a big business because there are so many modern quilters. I, I'm so impressed with what Rachel did, which is she looked at modern quilting from a very broad perspective. She talked to you know the current group of superstars, yes, but she also went far afield and talked to people who have been quilting in a modern style for decades. She talked to people who quilt from a very modern artistic perspective. She talked to people who are fairly new quilters. And she blended all of their perspectives in this book that is just such an inspiring and and challenging and interesting read that really makes you come to terms with kind of who you are as a quilter and and what that craft means to you. It's a how-to book in the sense that there are some tutorials tucked in for basic quilting processes and small projects, but I think it's more than that. It's, It's really more of a thought piece. You know, it's really a book that you sit down and read and unpack the questions it asks and journal about it. And I just... Craft books are so often project-oriented, which is not a bad thing, but it is uh, something that is very common. And I think that this Quilting with a Modern Slant is a very uncommon craft book. And if you have any interest in sewing and quilting, it's well worth taking a peek through it. And Three Chair is the story for um, taking on a project like this that was different from other craft books. and taking I mean, it's a risk to do that. And um, it sounds like it is a risk that really paid off. And I just think it's great that a a publisher is willing to kind of go out on a limb and do something that isn't quite the same as every quilting book that's already there. Story is just a wonderful publisher. I I just, everything I've seen come out of them, especially in the craft category in recent years, has just been really worth attention, you know, really worthwhile and and fresh. That's great to hear. Good to know, too. Um, Well, 
Diane and Haley, it's been so great talking to you both. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walsh Naps podcast. Thank you. It was fun. Okay. Yeah, thank you. It was great. Good. All right. So you've been listening to the Walsh Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg, and I invite you to visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you'll find helpful information for creative entrepreneurs as well as tutorials and patterns for making stuffed animals and dolls. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.